Up until the 16th century, the whole world believed that the Earth was the centre of it all. Uh, people would look up to the sky in daytime or nighttime and point to the sun, the moon and the stars and say, look kids, everything revolves around us. But in 1543, a man called Nicholas Copernicus showed up and unravelling maps and charts and probably fumbling with a clunky, twirling model of the solar system, he said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you've got this all wrong. We are not the centre of our solar system, he said. The sun is. Now, his discovery wasn't well received at first, but it revolutionised astronomy and in textbooks it's known as the Copernican shift. Now, what Copernicus did for astronomy, Revelation 4 does for churches and for Christians, for faith in God and a right orientation towards him. You see, the Bible's pretty clear that we have a tendency to think that uh, and to fall into behaviour that makes us, that shows that we believe that the world revolves around us. We are, in our sinful nature, self-centred, not God-centred. And that's often what's at the root of the kinds of sins that we've seen in the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation that we've studied. And through those letters, even seen in ourselves. So if we've lost our first love, if we are feeling like giving up in the face of persecution, tempted by sexual sin, uh, tolerating teaching that's intolerable to God, not sharing the gospel, uh, lifeless or even nauseatingly lukewarm, what will help us then be overcomers? The overcomers that Christ wants us to be and encourages us to be at the end of each of those letters? Well, our own Copernican shift to live lives that are not self-centred, but actually God-centred. And I pray that Revelation 4 will do this for me and for you as you watch today. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is the one who invites John up to enter heaven's open door to see and write down this vision for us. And his intent is to change us by doing so. And I'd like to tackle it just in two points. And the first is this. Number one, the centrality of the one enthroned. The centrality of the one enthroned. Now, at the heart of this vision is a throne. We see that in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, John tells us. Now, what does a throne make you think about? It makes you think about a king or a queen, surely. Someone who rules, someone who has subjects. That's exactly what this throne symbolises. The question is, who is seated on this heavenly throne? Well, John's actually a little bit vague at first. He's thin on detail. There's no description. There's no name of God in here. There's no big description like the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. It's just the word someone in verse 2. Now, who is it? Well, let's state the obvious but necessary point. It's not me and it's not you. No, verse 2 tells us God is seated on this throne. He's the sovereign ruler over all things, over heaven and earth and all that's in them including us. Now we know that this someone is God because we find the symbols and the images that we've got in verses 3 through to 7 used elsewhere in the Bible to describe God. Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6 and Daniel 7 especially 
all describe God in these ways with jewels and thrones and images of angels and cherubim and wings and all those kind of things. So the question we're asking then is, what actually is the point of these symbolic descriptions? What do they communicate? Well, the first thing to highlight, I guess, is that God is central and everything revolves around him. I don't know if you noticed in the reading, but everyone and everything in this chapter is described positionally in relation to the throne. It's a very careful arrangement. So the rainbow encircles the throne. The throne's at the centre. The rainbow encircles the throne. And surrounding the throne, you've got the 24 elders, uh, 24 thrones with the elders. And from the throne then comes lightning and thunder and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, you have the sevenfold uh, Holy Spirit. And all of that shows symbolically, positionally, God is at the very centre of heaven's worship. God is at the very centre of heaven. God is at the very centre, in fact, of all existence. And all existence finds its significance in its orientation towards the throne and God, its glorious occupant. Okay? So God is central. That's the first thing that this passage shows us. The second thing that we see in amongst this is that God is glorious and nothing compares to him. Kings and queens over the years have spent an awful lot of time and money finding and sticking jewels onto shiny crowns in order to give the impression impression of radiance. God doesn't need to do that. God is radiant. The jewels and the rainbow are just John's best similes for the light of God's kaleidoscopic glory. We also see God isn't just radiant, God is supreme. Because that glory is then emphasised by the arrangement of these 24 thrones around God's throne. That says God's throne at the centre is an indication of his supremacy. Now, who the 24 elders are is hard to say. They're either a high order of angels, and one of those earlier Old Testament passages points to that, or they're just representative believers from Old and New Testament. So 12 tribes of Israel plus 12 apostles equals 24 elders, do the math as they say, but we don't know, it's not that clear. But what is clear is that God is also powerful. God's glory, you see, is not only seen in this passage. There's something about John's description of the lightning and the thunder, verse five, that show that it's something that's felt. It, it symbolizes that God is powerful. Now, uh, there's something about thunder and lightning that evokes awe, isn't there? Uh, there's in them a fear that draws you and interests you, but, but also that holds you back and makes you just that little bit scared uh, all at the same time. Uh, we only need to think back to last week's storm, don't we? I mean, did you, did you go to your window to watch it? Of course you did. It was awesome. We haven't seen anything like it here. Well, I certainly haven't. Did you go outside in it though? Well, maybe, but not for long because it was awesome. You didn't know where the thunder was coming from. When I was a kid, I was taught how to count how far away the, the thunder is by counting the gap between the lightning flash and the hearing of the thunder based on how light and sound travels, of course. But I, you couldn't do that the other week because well, it was just all happening all at the same time all around you. It was uh, an awesome experience, really. Well, that's kind of what you grasp when you grasp something of God's power. 
There's something fearful about God that says, you do not mess with God. He is utterly powerful in himself. But not only that, you might think God is uh, of God like this uh, kind of elusive or distant uh, person, but think again, because verse 5 then goes on to say that in front of the, jo the throne, John sees the seven spirits of God blazing like torches. Now, he's already mentioned this in chapter 1 and verse 4, and it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven is symbolic. It doesn't tell us that there are seven Holy Spirits. It's a number that represents fullness or completeness. It is the Holy Spirit in all his perfection, who shares all the attributes of deity with the Father and the Son, yet distinctly and especially does his work, applies the work of the Father and the Son in both creation and salvation. All of which says to us, through this symbol of the Spirit's presence, before the throne, God is active in the world, convicting people of sin and in God's people, changing them to be like Christ. It's an incredible picture, but we're not done yet. Because then there's what it looks like, what looks like a sea of glass there in verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now Ezekiel 1 helps us here. It's something that says God is transcendent, high above the range of normal or even exceptional human experience. It's just a picture. There's no evil. It's calm. It's not chaotic. It's peaceful. But it's also glorious, perfectly clear. Then, finally in verse 6, we have these strange-looking four living creatures covered with eyes, which means they, they just see all things. They've got perfect perception of what is right and what is true. And we find that positionally they are then very close to God. We're about to hear what they say. That's why we've gone back to the centre of the throne. But they are to close proximity to the centre of the throne. But they are very close to God, offering service, as we'll see in a sec, and worship. All of which says God is worthy, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our total, uh, total devotion, worthy of our all. So if you're not a Christian, uh, I wonder how this sounds to you. Uh, let me tell you how this works and how it applies to you. I mean, if you live as, as if everything revolves around you and you're at the centre of it all, Essentially what you're doing is stealing glory that doesn't belong to you. You're like the moon boasting in its special light when in fact it's a lesser light, faintly borrowed from a greater light. God has said, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. We read that in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. And this then is the essence of sin itself. It's not just what you do. It is falling short of God's glory or stealing God's glory. And all of us have done that, as Romans 3.23 says. So let me ask, how do you think God acts towards people who live like they're the ones that are on the throne and live like everything in life revolves around them, that they can do as they please as self-rulers of their life? I'll tell you how he feels and acts towards them. Currently, he offers grace and mercy and forgiveness. 
You see, he sent his son Jesus to die under his thunderous judgment and rise in victory so that all who turn from sin and trust in God now while they have the chance, who all who turn from sin to trust in Jesus can actually be friends with God. You might call it a Copernican shift. The Bible calls it repentance. That's how he is, acts towards us currently, those who are not Christians currently. But one day, this door to salvation will be shut and those who have remained self-centred, self-rulers, to their death or to the end when Christ returns will face his fearsome judgment. That's the true explanation of the Bible. And the encouragement is to believe in him today. Brothers and sisters at Charlotte Chapel, can I ask you, are we God-centred in our own orientation, in our own life? Or is there a Copernican shift required in our own hearts and minds? I mean, is God central in our praise and in our lives, in our services, in our church life? Do we revere him enough in our prayers? Uh, what about our ministries? Are, are, any of, are any of us vying for glory in the church? Uh, this passage humbles us. It reorientates us and reminds us of who God is and who we are. Who am I? Who are you? God is all. On a personal level, it speaks to us too. On a personal level, this passage invites us to consider if this is our view of God, if God is at the centre of our existence, if we are living life for his glory or for our own. Is he glorious in our eyes and in our day-to-day -day living? Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said to his opponent Erasmus, uh, he said to him, your God is too human. Your God is too human. And I think that might be what lies behind some of, some of our common struggles. Like prayerlessness. Apathy when it comes to God's word. A nonchalant approach to sins, like pornography or whatever. Treating them as if they're just, nah, just something. Or maybe a lack of courage when guarding biblical doctrine. Or maybe a significant level of fear when it comes to trying to tell people about Jesus so that we essentially don't. We skirt around it so that essentially it's not sharing the gospel at all. Listen, if God is too human in our minds, too small, and we then put ourselves on his throne and live life our way or do things our way, then I guess we can't really be that surprised at our lack of devotion to him, to each other, to the mission he's called us to which are fundamentally the only things that matter in life and in eternity. Now, Revelation 4 reminds us and reminds God's churches who are struggling with sin, struggling with suffering, struggling with persecution in all sorts of different ways. It gives them that great encouragement through that great reminder that God is the centre of it all. That God will help those Christians who are struggling under the oppression of others. That God really will deal with and rebuke in love those churches that are playing around with his teaching and with his gospel. So how should we respond? Well, by, by living rightly, by being God-centred and not self-centred and 
one of the ways that we do that and certainly express that is by joining in the songs of Revelation 4 and worshipping the one enthroned. And this is point two, the worship of the one enthroned. In verses 7 to 10, we find that God is praised for who he is. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. So that's verse 6. Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So they praise him for who he is. In this brief song, they say he is holy, holy, holy. Now this is the only word used of God in the whole Bible that is repeated three times for emphasis. And it's a word that's especially fitting, you know, for declaring praise when all other words fail us. When we, when we grasp his uniqueness, and see him in a class or a degree of his own in terms of his purity, his justice, his moral uprightness, for who he is in his person, he is entirely set apart, devoted to his own justice and his righteousness. He is incomparable. He is truly glorious. Now these angelic beings, they're created for this very purpose to see with absolute clarity everything that's going on around them, especially their view of God, and then to declare with their mouths that he is holy, holy, holy. That's what they were made for, indeed. That's what we're all made for. We are made to worship God. We were created for the very same reason, to praise his holy name forever. They not only declare his holiness three times, they declare that he is the Lord God Almighty. Lord indicates his rule, his reign, and his ability truly to do so is almighty, all-powerful. And guess what? Nothing will ever change that because he's almighty forever. He is, he, heaven is forever proclaiming God's unchanging control over all things. And the encouragement of this passage for those who want to be God-centred, not self-centred, is join heaven in turning that very fact into song. Knowledge received should lead to glory given, friends. That is how worship works. They not only declare his holiness three times and that he is Lord God Almighty, they declare his eternality, his foreverness. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is eternal, no beginning, no end, never changing in himself or in his rule. No one can conquer him. He is the unconquerable, unchanging one. These are incredible adulations to give. There is no one else that you can give ascriptions like these two without sinning. These ascriptions can only be truly given to the Lord of heaven and earth. The question is, do we praise God like that? Uh, do we worship and adore him like that? Even in our prayers, do our prayers sound like that? Do our songs sound like that? 
I, I know we thank him lots, and that's a good thing to do. It's always good to give God thanks and praise. That's a biblical thing to do. But maybe we should go back beyond the thing we're thanking him for at times and praise him for the very character that made him do the thing for which we're thankful. Uh, and isn't that one of the means of grace that God has given us to keep our hearts alive to him? And to be a church together that reminds one another of these attributes of God, these characteristic traits, these definitive marks of who he is that then just reorientate us to what's true. Yeah, that we're we, we are silly for being self-centred. We are silly for seeking our own glory. Who are, who am I? Who are you? Who are we to do that? Well, this is certainly one of the things that helps us do daily what the 24 elders do constantly in verses 9 and 10. Um, when you read verses 9 and 10, you see what the praise of heaven from these angelic beings elicits in the actions of the 24 elders. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, before we even get into what they say, let's pause and look at that. What a picture that is for us. That's how to live a God-centered, God-glorifying existence. Take account of what you've been given, a crown, a blessing of some kind, whatever that might represent, and give it to God in worship. Glorify him because without him, you would have nothing. So earlier on in one of the, the letters to the churches, uh, I, I can't remember which one it was exactly, but it talked about one of the rewards for overcomers is a crown to wear. Uh, other passages talk about it too. In, in, in Paul's letters, he talks about it similarly. Well, what do we do with this crown of salvation that we receive? We're not, we're not patting each other on the back and we're not patting ourselves on the back. No, we're laying our crowns before him when we praise God for this salvation that he graciously and kindly gives to us. We lay our crowns. We fall on our faces before him and his glory and we lay our crowns before him because without him, we would have no salvation. Without him, we would have no heaven. No, they're not stealing glory, these elders. They're giving glory. And in doing so, showing us how we ought to live. Well, God is not only praised for who he is, we see that God is praised ultimately for what he's done in this second song in verse 11. Because as these elders join in with their, their own song, look at what they count as praiseworthy. Not just the that we've heard of the holiness of God and the almightiness of the Lord God and the eternality of the Lord God. And these are all praiseworthy aspects. But they say that God is worthy of praise because he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. This is a memory verse for you, by the way. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. The creation of all things is recognised here in heaven as a magnificent statement of God's glory and God's power. 
The beauty that we see in creation evokes awe in the creator. As Christians, we get that. We, it, register with, it registers with us when we see something praiseworthy in what he has made and we say, praise God, isn't it? Thank God, that is a wonderful thing to see. But it's so sad that our friends and neighbours, perhaps someone like yourself watching today, don't see it, or at least when they see it, don't give glory and praise to God who made it. No, to others, it's a random collocation of atoms. So they can climb Ben Lomond and they can marvel at the views just like any of us can, but they don't give glory where it's due. It's like appreciating a painting by Monet without appreciating Monet. It's, it's up to us to tell them so that they can give glory where it's due. Well, we'll do that when we live for his glory and not our own. When we're God-centred, living God-centred lives, we will evangelise, we will tell people the gospel and that's what we are made to do. Perhaps it's worth starting by doing as these elders do, to attribute creation to him in prayer. And in no time, as you pray, recall who it is that you belong to, that he, in a sense, owns us. You are not your own, the Apostle says, the Apostle Paul says, you were bought at a price. Indeed, even as verse 11 says, as we reflect on the fact that God created creation and us, we find that he willed it. That is, he wanted to make it. It pleased him to make it. He's glorious for having done it. And he's glorious for all the things that he has made, that reflect his creation. I mean, who, can, who else could have made bees, stars, mitochondria, human beings made in his image and likeness, 45 degree reflectors of his glory? All things, including us, owe him praises that ascribe him with non-stop glory and honour and power. So, we should really stop stealing glory because we are never further from what life was meant to be than when we're living like we're the centre of it all. When we're living self-centred lives. Friends, Revelation 4 is incredible. What a passage. What a God we have. What a God is described in it. My prayer, our prayer should be that we should ask God to help us live not for ourselves but for him. I can't help think, as I mentioned earlier, that some of the reasons we fall into the sins that we fall into or live half-hearted and do half-heartedly the mission that God has called us to or struggle so much with suffering or worry too much about health concerns rather than heart concerns. It could well be that we've just lost sight of God's glory and we've lost sight of what matters. It could well be that we need a Copernican shift in our own lives and hearts. So let's ask God to help us live not for ourselves but for him as we ought to. Let's ask God to show us any areas of our lives that require this shift in mindset and heart attitudes. Let's pray that we'll apply this to our hearts in the way that God intends it so that we will do what he was calling those churches to do in Revelation 2 and 3, to resist temptation, 
endure hardship, to share the gospel, to be comforted by his sovereignty, to humble ourselves and not be proud, to be the church that God has called us to be, and to be the people he has made us to be by giving him glory, for truly there is no one like him. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendour outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Revelation 4 tells us, only a holy God.